Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Spirit in the Flesh. It's based upon the readings for Sunday, July 16th, 2017. In a recent New Yorker cartoon from March 27th, a man sits on his sofa with two thought bubbles above his head. The first one says, get up. The other one says, no. And underneath the cartoon, the caption reads, the mind-body problem. Some things are hard to define, like the mind-body problem that has perplexed philosophers and neuroscientists. But that does not mean that some broad affirmations aren't sometimes more helpful than getting lost in the weeds. That's what I do when trying to understand Romans 8, 1-11, which provokes a number of complicated questions. In the epistle this week, Paul contrasts living in the flesh with living in the spirit. Translators and theologians have struggled with how to render this word flesh in the Greek sarx, which, with over 140 occurrences in the New Testament, has a broad semantic range. I agree with those who object to the NIV translation of sarx as our sinful nature. Paul also mentions our body, soma, which word likewise occurs over 140 times in the New Testament, sometimes with spiritual or figurative meanings, and which would seem to be similar to, and yet different from, our flesh. He also speaks of the mind, which raises questions about how the mind relates to the human spirit in our body. Interestingly, he does not mention our soul. Is Paul speaking colloquially here, or is he using technical language? I wonder how the original recipients of his letter to Rome 2,000 years ago heard these words. How would we update or understand this vocabulary today? To complicate matters further and to state the obvious, we would not expect Paul to have a contemporary understanding of the neurobiology of the mind, the brain, the body, human nature, decision-making, or that most vexing of all questions, the nature of consciousness. We have to connect his ancient text with our modern context. Nor is there a scientific consensus on these questions. And our best scientific knowledge today will be badly outmoded a century from now and just try to imagine how outmoded it will be in 2,000 years, which is the time period which separates us from the Apostle Paul. My simple takeaways from Romans 8, 1-11 are twofold. One is directed towards science, and the other toward the church. First, in his book, We Robots, Staying Human in the Age of Big Data, Curtis White observes that people are not mere Darwinian survivalists who exist only at a material level and who only need to master adaptive fitness. 
Rather, he's what we call maximalists, who need meaningful narratives in order to flourish. Food, for example, is about community and sharing, not just nourishment. Sex is about much more than procreation. In other words, human beings need a spiritual life in addition to their material existence, a life in or of the Spirit, or for believers, a life in the Holy Spirit. We do not exist only as flesh or body. We don't live by bread alone, said Jesus. A strictly materialist account of human nature and consciousness, such as Daniel Dennett's new book, From, Bo From Bacteria to Bach and Back, does not adequately account for our lived experience. Our best artists understand this. Back in October, I saw the new play The Hard Problem by Tom Stoppard, which questions the reduction of consciousness to mere matter. Similarly, the recent trilogy of movies by Terence Malick critiques a life lived only in the flesh, that is, money, sex, and power. A friend of mine whose mother just died described having to settle her estate. She reflected on the interplay of matter and spirit in her mother's life, how the physical objects that had created a place of beauty or facilitated loving hospitality were now disassembled, divided among the family, or sold. She reflected on how the memories of happy times tied to a certain place were becoming more insubstantial. An embodied life with physical objects, richly animated by a life of the spirit, now gone. The Church has also contributed to misunderstandings about the nature of our mind-body or spirit-flesh existence, in particular with body-shaming. Perhaps we inherited this uncritically from Plato, for whom the spirit-soul-mind was good and the material body with its physical appetites was bad. Whatever else Paul is saying in Romans 8, 1-11, I want to avoid the dichotomy that my flesh is bad and that my spirit is good. No, we read in 1 Timothy 4.4, everything created by God is good, and that includes my physical body. God hates nothing he has created. I've come to love the poem, Good is the Flesh, by Brian Wren. It's from the book, Good is the Flesh, Body, Soul, and Christian Faith, edited by Gene Denton from the year 2005. Listen to Brian Wren's poem. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the birthing, the milk in the breast. Good is the feeding, caressing, and rest. Good is the body for knowing the world. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body for knowing the world, sensing the sunlight, the tug of the ground, feeling, perceiving within and around. Good is the body from cradle to grave. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body from cradle to grave, growing and aging, arousing, impaired, happy in clothing 
or lovingly bear. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Good is the flesh that the Word has become. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh, longing in all as in Jesus to dwell, glad of embracing and tasting and smell. Good is the body for good and for God. Good is the flesh that the Word has become. The most fundamental doctrine of the Christian story, the Incarnation, that God became a man, affirms the goodness of the material world. On the first page of the Bible, Genesis calls this created material world good seven consecutive times. In some mysterious sense, human beings are a psychosomatic unity made up of both mind, body, and spirit flesh. And so, when I go to bed at night and say my prayers, I hedge my bets and I cover all the bases. I commend my deepest self and my truest identity to God. Not only my flesh and my spirit, but also my body, mind, brain, soul, and my psyche. I entrust myself to my loving Father, who, according to Psalm 139.14, created me fearfully and wonderfully in the first place. For books this week, I review a novel. It's called Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither. It's by Sarah Baume, New York, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, 2015. This book is 274 pages. This debut novel by the Irish writer Sarah Baume has won numerous awards for its portrayal of the love between two deeply wounded creatures, a misanthropic recluse named Ray and his abandoned and abused dog, One-Eye, so named for a wound from a badger. What really drives the novel is its delightfully strange narrative device, that is, a 274-page second-person soliloquy by Ray to his dog, One-Eye, in which he unburdens himself of his many hurts. I'm all on my own, Ray tells One-Eye, just like you. It's like he's wearing a spacesuit which buffers him from people, who at any rate avoid him at the bank, the grocery store, or the playground. He's a truly strange man, living alone in his dead father's dilapidated house on Tawny Bay, a stranger, like an ugly troll. But Ray is deeply aware of his wretchedness and his insignificance. He writes, They all think I don't notice, but I do. He fears every social situation. He quit going to Mass after his father died. He distrusts good fortune. He's not what he calls one of the regular people. In the one instance when he did feel like a regular person, who did regular things in a regular way, he says that he felt uncharacteristically inconspicuous, unsuspicious, even ordinary, and he writes, it felt good, so good. 
Sometimes I see the sadness in you, Ray tells One-Eye, the same sadness that's in me. His sadness comes mainly from his complicated and buried memories of his deceased father and the mystery of a mother that he never knew. When one eye attacks another dog, something like Girardian scapegoating forces them to flee their village. They head inland and drive and drive and drive, then return to the village and his father's house, the saddest place in our whole small world. He says, see the community we were insidiously hounded from, he tells one eye. See how community is only a good thing when you're part of it? Indeed. The author is Sarah Baume, an Irish writer, in her debut novel, Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither, an award-winning novel. For movies, I review Kivalina from the year 2016. Technically speaking, the tiny village island of Kivalina, just two square miles of land, situated 130 miles above the Arctic Circle, is part of Alaska, and therefore very much part of the United States. In a 2010 census, its population was 374 people in about 70 households. That was down from 377 in the year 2000. Kivalina is populated by an Eskimo tribe. Their ancient way of life faces many pressures in the modern world, but their real crisis is that the water is overtaking the land. By some estimates, coastal erosion and rising sea levels mean that Kivalina will be completely submerged by the year 2025. When one woman says that they just can't leave us here, you wonder whether she's asking a question or declaring a fact. Already there are federal, state, and local studies about the alternatives for their compulsory relocation. The costs are projected at $100 million. This is a powerful story of the collision between ethnographic history and environmental catastrophe. I learned about this movie from the PBS series America Reframed. The name of the movie, Kivalina. And for poetry this week, in keeping with our theme from Romans 8 of spirit and flesh, we've posted a poem by Christian Wyman. It's actually called Prayer, and you can find it on our website. For all the pain passed down the genes or latent in the very grain of being. For the lordless mornings, the smear of spirit, words into it and inter. For all the nightfall neverness inking into me even now. My prayer is that a mind blurred by anxiety or despair might find here a trace of peace. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 16th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.